Hello and welcome to the Evolve podcast, hosted by me, Simon Bocco, where I interview successful people who talk openly and honestly about the journey they've been on to become the person they are today, sharing stories, insights, tips and anecdotes along the way. It's a great opportunity to learn from entrepreneurs, business leaders, creatives and technologists who've all taken very different paths to success. Welcome to the Evolve podcast this week. Delighted to be joined by my friend Cliff Fawcett. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, no worries. Hey, Sai, how's it going? Yeah, not too bad, not too bad. All good. So I've known Cliff for 10, 15 years, and he's had the unfortunate pleasure of living with me at one point when we worked together quite early in our career, and we've kind of stayed in touch ever since. I always think Cliff is one of the kind of cleverest people that I know, but also at the same time, a bit of a chandler. I still don't really understand exactly what you do. I know it's for clever people and clever people do it and it involves understanding people and innovation and all those lovely things. So I thought I'll leave the introduction in terms of what you actually do to you. Well, that's assuming that I know what I do. <laughs> it's, um, such, it's such big brain stuff, even you don't understand it. Uh, no, thanks. Uh, yeah, no, it's, um, it's been quite, I think it's about 15 or more years now that we've, we've known each other. But yeah, I mean, what I do now, I work for a company called Brand Genetics and fundamentally we help brands grow. So we're a global boutique consultancy working with people like Unilever, PepsiCo, ABI, Reckitt. The challenges we love to get involved in are those kind of really knotty strategic challenges, those ones that you you kind of really that are really complex and you need to, you know, really kind of try and simplify it. And and the way we often go about that is, you know, our one the big thing we talk about is the one constant is human nature. And, you know, even if you, you look at people like Jeff Bezos, he's famous for saying, people often ask me, you know, what's going to change in 10 years? And that's an interesting question. But, you know, the more interesting question is what isn't going to change in 10 years because I can build a business around that. And so fundamentally, that's the same principle we work to is understanding, you know, immutable psychology and kind of behavioral science principles that we can apply to brands and then sort of layering on the what are people doing today and what trends what trends are emerging so we can almost see that trajectory, you know, from the things that aren't going to change through to how it's being expressed differently. Uh, and that really helps to give brands the right uh, the right direction uh, to move forward in. And the challenges, yeah, they could be positioning, it could be architecture, it could be innovation and, and new product development. So very varied. But in a nutshell, that's what I do, I think. <laughs> well, so I think what, I thought we'd talk about kind of those things kind of almost individually, because I think they're interesting topics in terms of I say this idea around what's not going to change and and how you kind of overcome that uncertainty in business by looking at the things that are certain and obviously that human nature runs through everything. So I think we'll talk about that later. But what I wanted to start on, and you kind of mentioned is, obviously you started off in terms of your degree, you studied psychology. And I kind of, I guess what's kind of interesting of the time that I've known you is that and it's interesting how you've landed in a world of human nature, you know, and, and uh, in terms of your uh, roles that you've had to my knowledge this is the longest place that you've ever worked and in, 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 you know obviously you've moved up the ranks there and you've kind of found your, your, your footing so I think what's kind of interesting is almost where you've kind of seen you've kind of studied psychology at the beginning like what kind of where where is that kind of taking you and how that's become almost like a backbone to your career whether it was our early days in PR right through to kind of where you are now and and how you've seen that evolve because the interesting thing for me is we're having a conversation about kind of human nature and how that impacts brands, we wouldn't have spoken about that 15 years ago. That wasn't really on anyone's radar. So it'd be interesting to kind of see how that element is kind of become more and more prevalent in the work that you've done over time. 
Yeah, I think it's it's a good point. I mean, you know, I guess it really starts with, you know, I did psychology at university, as you say, and, and actually did psychology in, um, before that in school as well. So I think at heart, I've always had a fascination with understanding people, which probably isn't a surprising thing to say, given the industry that, that I'm in. But I think that's been the real through line. I think, you know, through my career is about understanding how to apply that. So, yeah, going through school, going through uni, having that bedrock, thinking for a long time, I was probably going to stay in academia. And then after a couple of years at uni, I was like, God, get me out of here. I need to do something, you know, which actually has commercial application. And felt that the most natural way to go was actually to be in that people space. So, yeah, I went into Stratcoms, into PR, uh, where I was fortunate enough to meet you. But, you know, I, I think actually it just wasn't, I didn't find that rewarding in, in turn, I guess, in, in the way I expected to intellectually. You know, it was great meeting people, great connecting with people, but actually it was almost too much of a jump from that academic side. And I think that's where going into the world of branding and before uh, being at Brand Genetics, I was at another agency called Big Green Door, which, you know, applied some of the same principles and sort of psychology, but not, not to the same level that we do now. And I think that mix, that ability to actually be in that research space, not just kind of talking to people, which I do, you know, I, I do a lot of moderation and interviews and, and those kind of things, but actually really kind of getting under the skin and understanding, yeah, human nature, what makes people tick? What are some of those guiding principles that people have that, you know, it's, it's amazing sometimes going into to research, having looked back at the academic literature and sort of going, okay, so this is what's happening. And then seeing people do that in real life, if you're kind of in someone's home and it's like, okay, that's, they're doing that um, that we saw earlier. So I think it's a really interesting way of framing the way we think and framing the way we gather research and insight through that. And that brings me on to, yeah, the thing I find fascinating is this concept of, if I've got it right, ethnography, which is quite literally following people around. Mm. And my understanding is obviously a, a, a kind of more simplistic level to you, but effectively, if you ask people a series of questions about what they did and what their habits were, the responses from those questions would be very different to actually if you observed them and actually found in reality what, what that looked like. So I think it's interesting is the concept of, I think you mentioned you worked on whether it was a new product development or brand where you were following around families and understanding mm -hmm. their relationship with, with food and their children, if I'm right, if my memory's yeah. good. And so I would think about, obviously, I've got a five-year-old, the idea of you just hanging out in my kitchen and watching what I'm putting in a bowl and I've had too much cereal for three days and there's a sugar problem. So, so, so tell me about, I think, two things. One is the importance of that almost kind of observatory and, and kind of placing yourself within somebody's life but also kind of how that works in reality it feels like do people kind of clam up do they act quite weird when you're around like kind of how does that work be good to understand that yeah I think it's a really it's a really good question and you know it's it's a skill that I think a lot of people in our business have and we we look to develop but you know at its core it, it it's about developing empathy you know you can't have some of these conversations and you're, you're right it was the topic was around families and, and understanding kind of kids nutrition and how we can impact that in a positive way uh, for the client we were working with you are in somebody's house you are asking them potentially you know in that case you know it's, it's almost like what do you know about nutrition you can feel people can feel quite judged on on those kind of things so the critical thing is about how you develop those bonds in that sort of the first part of that ethnography and and allow people to open up and that looks different for every person so I think that's where you 
you've just got to have that right feel to it. So, you know, we, we focus a lot as well as them on sort of academic sort of psychological literature and implying that to the work. The other side of it is how can we make sure we are really, truly empathic with people or as much as possible? I mean, it was Barack Obama who said that, you know, the greatest deficit in the world right now is an empathy deficit. And that's very true. And so we're very cognizant of that. I and mean, actually, we released, I think it was two, two or three years ago now, we released um, a, something called the Empathy Playbook which was a distillation of, of literature from counselling, um, journalism, loads of other fields about how you can apply empathy in a market research setting. And, you know, some of those are about how you engage with consumers. Others are actually where, you know, no consumers were harmed in the making of this. And it's about employing sort of empathic techniques to be able to, to think in the way your consumers do. So it's something that we truly like embody in the work that we do. And I think it's super important to get to, to the depth of insight that we need for some of our clients. Because if you haven't got that bond, you don't develop that connection. The level of honesty that you can get from consumers changes greatly. And I think, you know, all, all research, right, you're measuring something in some way. So it's, it's bound to change. It's bound and you've got to read between the lines. But the more empathic you can be, that I think the, the truer the insight that you can get. What about obviously, obviously what you do? There's, I've met some of the people that work at Brand Genetics and you all cut from a similar cloth. You're, you know, kind of very, very bright people who do this. What about someone who, for example, is maybe working on a prototype or developing a new idea? Is there something that you might recommend or something they could do that I guess is more accessible or something that they could do themselves to almost get some validation for their product? Or, you know, for example, I knew someone who they were developing a new digital product. They kind of drew it out on paper and just found random people in a coffee shop and started going up to them and saying, what do you think of this? And what do you think of this? But which I think is kind of something that really helps. But you talk about empathy and you talk about putting yourself in the shoes of a consumer. Is there anything that, that's, that's kind of more accessible that someone who is perhaps a startup or, or a small business could use and some techniques that you might recommend to help bring some validity to their product or business or their idea? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, again, it's it's a principle that we apply a lot of the time, you know, depending on the project, but, you know, making it as real as, as it can be. And, you know, what, what is the MVP um, that, that you can you can deploy? I mean, I remember working in the soft drink space and having having a workshop. We had just loads of liquids and powders and everything in the workshop and just let people play, you know, have that creativity to create things. And we had some great ideas come out of that. And, you know, trying it around the room, getting and then actually taking it to consumers, um, some of these kind of prototyped ideas and getting them to try it. And, you know, I think it's very once you've got something that people can touch and hold and feel and try, it, it allows people to go, oh, this is when I'd use it. This is how I could see this fitting in my life versus at a conceptual level where, you know, that that's a very much harder conversation to have. And I think there's there's loads of ways that people can can do that. I, it's sometimes you don't even need to go and speak to people. I think it's about how can you put yourself, you know, in a way like the, the lowest common denominator, how can you put yourself in their shoes? Take away the knowledge that, you know, if you're developing a digital product that you have, you know, put yourself in the shoes of someone who knows nothing and how does their relationship with that product change? What, you know, what are they really looking for? You know, it is that sort of user design um, at the end of the day. How, how can you just kind of put yourself in their shoes and think about it? I mean, one of the strongest ways, the simplest ways to think about things is just around associations. You know, people think about 
through association with anything. So any topic area that you're looking at, you know, simply think asking people, what are your positive associations with X? What are your negative associations with X? What is X not? You know, in the words and the patterns in those words that you get out gives you a very clear sense of people's relationship or a culture's relationship with that idea, um, which can actually really help to guide your your development or your um, your thinking in that way. And I think there's again something that's interesting for me. So, so I've had the pleasure of being in one of your workshops because, uh, lucky for me, I was in a perfect segment for something. And I think there's something interesting in again when you're in startup mode. You might be testing things on friends and family, for example, yeah. and, and that's cool. I think it's good to get some early, you know, some early insight in terms of if there's any glaring problems. I think we, when we kind of move it on from there, it's around customer segmentation. And I thought what was very interesting about being on the other side of things and actually being in a workshop rather than taking one is I was looking at five Simon Boccos. It was a really strange thing, like almost, I don't know how you managed to do it, but we had the same hopes and fears. We had the same ambitions. We had the same daily struggles. Jimmy, we were all exactly in the same category. And it'd be interesting to get some insight from you in terms of how you build those rooms of almost literally 10 perfect customers for this or whatever the number was. Can you remember what the workshop was? It's for Bacardi. I was okay. we were interested okay. in attracting, I was younger, younger at the time, so young males to the Bacardi brand through new product development. So something that was not currently on the shelves. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's, um, you know, it's definitely more of an art than a science, I think, sometimes those pieces. But, you know, fundamentally, if a brand is going after a specific type of individual, especially with new launches where you're looking for those you know, um, early adopters, is that language that you yeah. heard before? Yeah. So if you're looking for those early adopters, those people who are going to help your product cross the chasm, you know, it's really critical to make sure that you're getting the right people in the room that are helping to you know, I think we see research in a very in a very different way. It's not about validation, right? I mean, it's qualitative work a lot of the time. You know, maybe we're only speaking to 10, 15, 20, 30 people. The way we use research is very much part of the creative development process. It is not yes or no. It is not a beauty contest because I think that is gives qual research a, a sort of a bad rap and I think sets the wrong expectations for things. Whereas actually, when you get those people in the room who are creative, who are articulate, who can help you to build ideas and see the potential in things, that actually really helps clients get further faster. So it is, it is as I say, more art than science. It's about kind of knowing what you're looking for and then fundamentally developing the right question set to try and screen out people that, that don't fit that, that aren't going to help you to build the product or the idea in a constructive way. So there's certainly rigor behind it, but I think it is also about feel and knowing how to frame those questions to, to get the right people in the room. And when you talk about this idea, which I think is fantastic around research as part of the creative development process, again, for people who, who, who may not have done this, is that something, I guess the logical thing for me, and I think I may know the answer, but you might tell me otherwise, is that people see this as a thing up front. You know, it's almost like you do some research and that's great. That's almost giving you a body of insight to go and do something. But my assumption is that research is almost mingled and integrated through the entire process to make sure that you're always 
checking and balancing against a consumer or an insight? It should be. And I think, um, you know, increasingly we and our clients and I think the world is seeing that I think you used to go, go and get research, go and get an insight, develop a concept, test the concept, quant the concept, launch the concept. Very simplified view. I think we're much more into a world of uh, thinking, you know, in terms of agility and very much more being test and learn. How can we, you know, okay, we've got something here. Let's, let's you know, develop a kind of straw man concept, a, a skeleton, an MVP, whatever it is, and then to keep testing and keep learning as you go through that whole process. So I think we are getting much better. I think the industry is getting much better integrating that kind of thinking versus put all your you know, eggs into one basket, get that sort of insight as strong as possible, then develop a concept. It's much more, okay, there's something in this insight. Let's, you know, let's make it real. Let's test some, some form of a concept um, and then actually continue to refine our insight as well as refine the idea as we go. So it's much more iterative, I think. And I think that's where that creativity really sort of comes in. And specifically, if we go through some of the things that you listed in, in terms of kind of services or, or types of projects that you might work on, I know my daughter loves something which you've made, which is the, or not made, sorry, that's probably an overclaim, but you contribute to the making of, which is these little Freddo uh, chocolate treasure chests, and she, and she absolutely loves those. And I always find uh, new product development fascinating because, and lots of people, I mean, I never knew until, until I met you, is obviously if, if, you're, if you're a large chocolate manufacturer and you're going to roll out a product internationally, you have to set up. You have to order the ingredients. You have to set up all of your manufacturing, different countries, and your distribution and stuff. So the cost of failure for mm. a new version of Pepsi or a new version of a Cadbury's chocolate bar or something is huge. So the amount of time and effort and resource, as you can understand, that goes into this is is, is massive. So it'd be really good to understand the types of things that I guess you personally do and the business in which you work for does when it comes to new product development and almost shed some light on when you're up at that kind of FTSE 100, Fortune 500 level, what these big brands are doing to develop new products. Yeah, I mean, I think we, we can take that um, little treasure example um, because I think that's a, a really rich one. You know, we were brought onto that journey right at the start. And so they had a, a challenge, um, you know, how can we, we sort of usurp another famous kid's chocolate that is maybe has a surprise in it and that was where the sort of the genesis came from but you know we were literally starting from a blank piece of paper and so that really was about going about gaining insight about understanding why that chocolate was doing so well and you know what were some of the principles that we could learn from um, and apply to you know what became known as as little treasures Um, and actually then going through that developing concepts refining that insight by testing those concepts in a very cyclical way and a number of projects we developed and honed that idea we then actually helped explore the communications for that idea ready for launch we actually even did uh, ecg uh, experiments so we had uh, went to homes with families and we had people uh, kids with a ecg on what's ecg uh electro cognitive something yes so basically, it's a, it's a kind of hat that measures 
brainwaves is, is that what it is exactly yeah and you can see from those brainwaves the kind of key emotional responses so am i feeling surprise am i feeling excitement am i feeling whatever and it was really interesting to be able to kind of dig in and see the difference between the product we were trying to be and the emotional response for the product we were doing because again it helped inform okay well it's generated and i can't honestly remember but generating more excitement so our communication should lean more into talking about excitement than talking about surprise for example so it was a really nice directional piece to help inform comms so yeah that was a really interesting journey from yeah the inception of the idea all the way through but you know we're, we're often brought in at different times in that journey so it could be helping to find the insight it could be helping to come up with ideas it could be helping to refine those ideas or it could be the whole process um, but the, as you say there are many steps in that journey that the brands are taking and we're increasingly getting involved in the quantitative side as well so we're not a quant agency by any stretch of the imagination but i think what we're starting to see you know we talked about qual being part of that creative process there is that element of sort of validation that is required quickly as well so we're actually starting to do a lot more of kind of hybrid approaches where we're doing some qual, but then actually rolling into a, a kind of early stage quant to help make sure that that we, you know, we're heading in the right direction. There's validity there. I think what's fascinating, because I've done this again at kind of a lower level to what, what you might do, is obviously we, we were all children once, but we don't necessarily remember what that was like. And I think it, it'd be interesting to see if there's any anecdotes along the way where it's almost... I find it great where, where us as adults, we sit around and we think this is what would be a really great chocolate bar that had a or, or chocolate treat that had a surprise element to it. And then when it actually comes to that testing, that maybe your assumptions all sitting around a boardroom as 30, 40, 50 something is actually completely wrong and, and you're well off trend or whatever. So it'd be interesting to understand maybe some of those insights that came out of maybe some of the products you tested, because I think a lot of that, and I know it happens really often, and I'm, I'm conscious of it with some of my clients I work with, is the danger of, of making something in a vacuum that you think people want versus when you actually get it in front of people. And, and again, obviously, you've got the sophistication of, of monitoring brainwaves and so on. But, but it'd be interesting to understand whether maybe if you had some hypothesis around things or, or certain things that you tested that you thought would have gone well, but went really poorly. I was surprised. You thought, we'll throw this one in here. We'll see if they're interested in it. And actually, that's the one they gravitate to the most. I think it happens every single innovation project. I think you have your things that you love, but you, again, it's about that empathy, about putting yourself into other people's shoes and, and sort of trying to recognize that. You know, we talked about human nature before, and one element of human nature is narcissism. You know, we are all narcissistic to some degree. The other piece of that is uh, the slightly broader element is this idea of generational myopia, that we believe our generation is, is better than the generations before or after. It's connected to narcissism, but yeah, at a, at a wider level. And so you see that, I think, when you're generating ideas for people that aren't new, uh, if you're generating for millennials or, you know, Gen Z or, or, or younger, you've got to kind of be able to recognize your biases. You know, we're all going to go into research with biases, but how can I make sure that they're not clouding the view and you are being as true to, the, to what you're learning, to what you're hearing as possible? You know, sometimes those biases are useful. But again, it's, it's about being aware of them and recognizing it so you can get the truest insight possible. Yeah, definitely. And I think, again, that's something I think we spoke about on previous podcasts. I think it happens a lot during a creative process where almost there's something that you want to push. Yeah. But your consumer is not wanting that. And so unfortunately, although you might be very excited about what that product may be or what the creative output might be, you know, you've got to listen to your consumer. 
and think, like we said before, when such huge amounts of money and reputations at stake when you're developing a new product at such a big level, it's really important to kind of get that raise a focus on the customer and ensure that you're delivering right into that sweet spot. I completely agree. And I think that's what's very exciting, that more and more companies are becoming more consumer-centric. And I think that is powerful. I think we, we, know, we know the power in it. I think what the challenge is not to... It's about interpreting the consumer needs in the right way, because it's very easy to listen to consumers and go, okay, well, they just want X or Y. And we all know the famous Henry Ford quote, right? If I'd ask consumers what they wanted, they'd have told me a faster horse. You know, and that's that's true. But what? How do we creatively interpret what faster horse means? You know, that I think is a is a real. That's the innovation skill. That's the the sort of creative, inventive skill. And it takes a very different mindset. And I think within the work that I do, and we have to wear many hats. You know, one minute we're being a empathic and sort of being a real insight professional, and the next minute it's about how do we now become more divergent and get the right creative uh, inputs. And you know bringing the right people in to help that creative process to come up with the ideas that are going to represent the future. They address the needs, but they address them in a way that is pushing the category forward. Yeah, definitely. And I think, and maybe this kind of leads me on to to your kind of final point about this idea around looking at what isn't going to change rather than what is. And and you've given me many quotes today and I was, my one is always uh, and I'll probably get this wrong now, but <laughs> anything certain about the future is uncertainty. You know, and I think if you're trying to second guess what something might happen, I mean, I mean, COVID's a very good example. I'm sitting around and expecting house prices to tank so I can get one cheap, and they've gone up 14 percent or whatever it is. And, and <laughs> so my, my trend spotting radar is is well off, you know. And I think that that with all of these things at play and and, and different kind of things happening, that happens all too often. So again, it'd be interesting if you talk to me about. The, that concept that you outlined at this kind of start of this discussion around looking at what's not going to change mm-hmm. and then building sort of business cases around that. I think it's, you know, no, no brand, all brands want to grow sustainably, you know, in the sense that whatever we, we launch, whatever we do, whatever we drive forward, it's a growth that we can continue to sustain as time goes by. If you're only focusing on what people are doing now or you're focusing on the trend, that will also sort of drop away. But if you can tap into something that is true about people, uh, human nature, yes, the way you express that might have to change, but at least you're kind of continuing to, to, to build on a principle that st- has stood the test of time. To take an example, working in alcohol, there are fundamentally four reasons people drink. And you know, it doesn't matter when or what, you know, when they're drinking or who they're drinking with, there are four critical needs. You know, and knowing that is a really useful framework because you can understand, okay, at a, you know, at a kind of core level, what do we feel that this drink is going to be used for? Is it going to be to help people conform, enhance, cope? And I definitely can't remember the fourth one. Um, you know, what, what fundamentally are we trying this to do? You know, enhance, it, it's going to be all about sort of something quite experiential, sensorial, for example. Conform, you know, that's beer space classically, you know, it's we're all having the same thing, we're all in it together. And so I think by tapping into some of these kind of fundamental, unchanging needs of a category, you you can kind of, it's a solid foundation and framework to build from, you know, kind of how, how to build it, how to 
it's not a map by any stretch, but it's almost that compass, right? We're going in this direction. And I think that's very useful. And it also provides a common language, I think, to understanding as well, which I think when you're working in big businesses with sort of multiple kind of stage gates, having that common language, that common understanding and, and simple understanding is really powerful to help drive innovation through as well, because innovation is hard to drive through businesses. You know, it needs it needs a lot of dedication. It needs a committed team, usually a small team. And often it's about pushing pushing against the status quo. You know, you might be undermining the current business model of, of a business. You might have to cannibalize something that you're, you're already doing. And so it can be a bit of a, a sort of a maverick organization within an organization. You know, you're trying to break, break the machine that got you to where you are. So I think having that clarity of understanding is really important to help, help teams to drive that through. Yeah, really interesting. I think the kind of final thing I wanted to talk about, which is it was slightly on that point, is culture and the impact of culture. So I know that you do lots of work uh, internationally, and there may be examples if you've got some, if not perhaps separately, where you're working on, let's say, whatever it might be, a packet of crisps, for example. But the way in which you express that packet of crisps or even develop that product is different in China versus Japan versus the UK versus Italy. It'd be really interesting to understand cultural influences and, and, and the role they play. Yeah, I think it's a really important important piece. I mean, I'm going to sound a little bit like a broken record, but I think the first thing we we would do on any global project is what is the common denominator? You know, so you know that belief that what unifies us is stronger than what divides us. If we can get back to a psychological principle that, irrespective of culture. That is a great starting point, especially when you're working with a, a global business. You know, ultimately, they want to find one solution for everything. So when you start to try and kind of cut by culture, that makes the profitability of any new innovation, you know, it, in, it impacts that in a negative way. Whereas if you can find something you can build that goes across culture, that's a lot stronger position to be in, a lot more profitable position to be in. So that's our, always our starting point. You know, what's that commonality at a psychological level? But of course, culture can play a different role. And it's, again, it's the go, okay, now let's look at the culture level and understand what is that changing um, from what we've, we've understood at a fundamental level. And I think it can have a, a big impact. And, you know, we, we employ things like semiotics, which I think is a great way of understanding kind of cult, cultural codes, signs and, and signals. You know, just been doing that in the healthy eating space. And really interesting that one of the things that's come out of that is how, for example, Italy, which has a much kind of health and taste kind of come together. There's a duality in their food rather than this kind of there is healthy food or tasty food. And so they live their diet very much based on balance and variety. That's how they see kind of health and taste combining. Whereas in a market like Germany, health and taste are very separate and it, they, they work on a much more work on, you know, it, in terms of the way you kind of look at the code, it's much more debit and credit. I'm going to have something tasty now, but that's going to put me into debt, you know, a sort of health debt. And then I'm going to have to have something really healthy to put me back into credit. And it's much more balanced that way versus balance on a plate in, in its own right. So, yeah, I think culture does play a really important role. But I think the more working at a, a global level and trying to develop when we're certainly looking to develop products, 
we would, you know, first sort of go to what is the common denominator before we get lost into sort of cultural conversations. And then one assumes you can kind of flex it from there. So the core of it is X. Okay, yeah. what does, how does X adjust exactly. slightly in, in those different markets? So if it's a healthy food, it's going to be expressed quite differently in Germany as it was from the other markets you mentioned. Yeah. And, you know, there's some great tools out there as well, which they're free um, and we employ. So I don't know if you've heard of the, the Hofsted Cultural Index, nope. um, which is, is really interesting. Um, he, I can't quite remember how he developed it, but basically it breaks down cultures on, I think, six dimensions. So, for example, masculinity, power distance, so i.e. authority, individualism, etc. And you can actually look at the data set and see, okay, if I put in, you know, we're working in X, Y, and Z market. If I put in those markets, where's where's the difference? You know, and you look at a market like China versus the US, very different on that scale of individualism. So again, it gives you that insight before you go into that market to go, okay, well, this is going to be a key point we need to understand. Fine, from a psychological point of view, we know this, but that's a key dimension um, that we need to be aware of and we need to factor in because it is going to change how we interpret the data. All fascinating stuff. And yeah, I mean, it's probably one of these things that, that, that there's there's almost like a, a podcast on each of these individual things because I think it's such a such a rich topic, such a rich subject, and something like you say, you know, human nature is you know, and human understanding it runs for everything. You know, we are all the buyers of products, we're all all doing certain things. So, one takeout for me is around you know the importance of and it's interesting you talk about this move to customer centricity you know that there's almost uh, an assumption that people do that that is that the customer is central but that, that isn't always the case and that is something that is becoming more and more prevalent and i think um, hopefully you agree with me if, if there's someone out there who's starting a business or is operating in business that idea that you put the customer center to what you do and see research and whether it's techniques like you've talked about whether it's um ethnography or, or, or something simpler and more more easy to, to kind of manage in-house but having that kind of constant research running through a process or new products is, is kind of vital. Yeah I, I, I absolutely agree um, you know I think we talked about empathy and I think that's um, that is absolutely critical I think the way you know we we certainly think about it is empathy in, in our position as a, as a consultancy empathy runs two ways that we need to understand consumers and what they're doing and, and sort of really make sure we're listening to them. But the flip side is really understanding the business need as well, because actually if we we can understand consumers as well as possible, but if we haven't really empathized and understood the business need, that's going to get missed. We are, how do we make sure that that consumer learning is really answering the business need, the business challenge in the right way? And we're delivering that in a way that the, you know, if it's about innovation or or the sort of insight professional, how can they make sure that that gets really embedded back into the business and helps drive that business growth? So we're kind of we're kind of middlemen, I guess, in that kind of empathy divide deficit and making sure that we're kind of bringing that bridge between the two. Brilliant, really, really, really fascinating. Really appreciate you coming on and and kind of talking to us about this. I think a fascinating subject in general. I, I could turn up and, and listen to you as, as a lecture, but also I think some really key lessons in, in, that people can take from this that are at an accessible level, but also if, if you're a FTSE 100 business listening to this and, and you're looking to develop a, a new product or looking to innovate, obviously I've known Cliff for a long time, 
Um, can't recommend him enough. And obviously met the team at Brand Genetics and a bunch of smart people who are doing really interesting things. So reach out. You're doing some seminars and things that I've seen as well, which are, again, really, really, really interesting. So I think anyone who wants to learn more about the, the topic, the subject is interested, kind of follow Brand Genetics, follow Cliff. And there's lots, lots of you're doing at the moment. They're a big advocate for it, I believe. Yeah, no, it'd be great. Yeah, please do. If, it, if we can help, we'd love to help. Um, yeah, we're not too difficult to find on LinkedIn online. So, but thanks, Simon. It's been a fascinating conversation and uh, yeah, really enjoyed it. And that wraps up another episode of the Evolve podcast. I hope you've taken inspiration and learned something from this week's interview. And I'd love to see you here next week. So please do subscribe. If you're interested in finding out more about what we're doing at Evolve, Be sure to check us out by visiting goevolve.co.uk. And finally, remember, in business and in life, you never stop evolving. See you next week. (laughs) 